0: Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Levi Seed with the Joel Palmer House in Dayton. It's November 9th, 2022. Levi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, first question to get you started is why
1: wine? Why wine? Uh, that's, a, that's a long story. Um, you know, my, my interest for wine, uh, I'm not really sure where it came from. Um, I actually grew up in a dry household, um, so I'm one of... Uh, one of four siblings. I'm the youngest. Um, I was actually adopted from India uh, when I was five months old and was adopted into a, a lovely family in Beaverton. Um, my, uh, my parents had a uh, five-year-old daughter at the time, uh, my sister Heidi, who I'm very very close with, and we had a, adopted me when I was five months old and we had a lovely childhood and then um, we adopted two others from Kazakhstan when I was when I think I was five. Um, they came into our house around uh, six and seven years old, um, so we uh, grew up in a pretty large family for being young. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, my parents were never really into drinking at the time. Anyway, um, we never had ciders or beers or whatever. We never had like a wine cellar. You know, my mom would occasionally go out for a cocktail with her work friends or something. But um, you know, it wasn't like oh, we're gonna crack open a you know something to drink with dinner. Um, So my interest for wine, um, we're not really sure where it came from. Um, it, you know, for me it really started in culinary school. Um, I took two advanced wine tasting courses as part of my curriculum when I joined the Oregon Culinary Institute. Um, and I was always pretty interested in wine even as, you know, going through high school. Um, I just found it interesting. Um, I was always about learning and, you know, creating, uh, new paths for myself and you know, one of the things working as a, as a chef, um, you know, you become very well versed with ingredients and cooking cuisines and styles and all these different things. But for me, uh, cause I would always do, you know, want to do wine pairings and courses and pair my, my food with wine. But going into like a wine store and looking at a wine wall was for me, like going into a advanced calculus, like college, um, college course and, you know, you see the movies, you know, you go to like one of those, walk into a lecture hall and it's a big whiteboard with a bunch of numbers and squiggles and you're like, okay, cool, this is math, but I have no idea what it means. <laughs> that was what it was for me going into a wine store. Um, I'd see all these bottles and names and labels and vintages and I had no idea what it meant. And I wanted to um, be able to go in there knowledgeable and understand what I'm looking at um, to better help pair my food with wine. Um, the, uh, the advanced tasting courses I took um, was advanced oenology and viticulture and then advanced wine tasting of the world. Um, and I was 19 at the time when I joined culinary school, so right out of the high school. But because you're in an educational setting, um, you're allowed to take sips of alcohol um, to learn. Mm-hmm. So I was introduced to fourth growth, first growth Bordeaux, Grand Cru Burgundies, Gros Champagnes, um, Tokai's, Chateau Ycam, like all, some of the best wines around the world um, at a very young age. Um, In culinary school and a lot of the people that took the class you know figured was this gonna be super easy oh we're just gonna hang out in school and drink and it's gonna be an easy A but this was actually a pretty intense course Um, I don't think most of the people realized how how much work went into learning about the wines Um, and I kind of fell in love with the craft Mm -hmm. Um, my instructor um, at the time his name was Raul Gonzalez and he was also a former student for Oregon Culinary Institute um, was also a SOM and Uh, I kind of became his protege. Um, I don't really like, you know, calling myself a teacher's pet but I definitely was in that class. Um, I was very, very into the class and um, just diving all, diving into it as a whole and learning all about, learning all I could. So he and I actually studied together um, prior to class, pretty much daily. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd go in and we would sit down and talk about the regions and um, do blind tastings together. We'd go wine tasting and after a while he kind of, um, encouraged me to pursue a career career in in wine, and so while continuing my studies through Oregon Culinary Institute and graduating, working as a chef, um, I decided to start learning more on my own. Um, did about another year of studies uh, solo after I graduated, and then decided to take uh, my first SOM certification in uh, two thousand seventeen. I got a little burnout working in the kitchen, and was like, you know what? I'm gonna take a take a step back. I wanna you know, I don't want to work as a chef anymore. I love cooking. I love creating for people, but I don't want to do this as a career anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be, you know, I want to be involved with the guests. I want to be, uh, you know, forefronted and uh, or forward facing. I guess you could say, and just be more more involved in in service. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I like wearing suits. You know, <laughs> the Oregon Wine Press just came out a month ago, and they you know, asked me a very similar question. You know. Why, why, do, why did you get into the wine? My, my answer was, well, I like suits. <laughs> but I was like, no, for real, though, actually. But it's, it's partially true. I like wearing suits.
0: <laughs> so tell me about the decision to go to OCI in the first place. What prompted you to
1: follow the path of, of thinking you were going to be a chef or always going to culinary institutes? So when I was a kid, um, it was always a dream of mine to become a chef. You know, Some people want to be astronauts, um, police officers, whatever. I wanted to be a chef. Um, from a very, very young age, um, I was always just experimenting and doing crazy, disgusting things in the kitchen. Um, the, the earliest memory I have was, uh, I remember going through like the um, the malls and those kiosks, and they had all those Tupperware kiosks, like the old-fashioned ones. Um, we had this Tupperware set, and it was a dark green, like long, elongated container with a, one of those like... Uh, plastic lids on it, but it had like, it wasn't clear, it had like the Mm -hmm. fuzzy look on it. Yeah. Um, and I remember putting like, dried spaghetti, like raw spaghetti noodles, water, like a bunch of different food coloring, and then just putting it in the freezer, I don't even know what I was trying to do. Um, and I remember my mom opening the freezer and it wasn't fully set, and it like spilled all over her. And I don't remember if she was mad at the time, I think she probably was because I was always just doing crazy stuff. There's always, there's always something that was just like, what is this? Oh, it's probably something Levi did. <laughs> um, just in our house. Um, I always had like my little stashes of things that were hidden somewhere. And we'd always get weird smells. I'm like, what is happening? I'm like, oh, that's probably something I did. <laughs> so <laughs> I always wanted to be a chef. Um, but it kind of became an afterthought when I went to high school. Um, I went to Health and Science High School in Beaverton. And uh, very unique school, it was one of the option schools, so it wasn't a, wasn't a private school, but it was one of those unique like trade schools and, um, or charter schools. Um, and that during your junior year of schooling, you get to choose the path between medical or engineering. And I wanted to do engineering. So I was um, heavily involved in AutoCAD, um, all the engineering courses. Um, and I was actually somewhat on track to go to MIT. Um, that was kind of my goal. I wanted to become a civil engineer and design bridges. Um, but, uh, and we'll probably get to this later in the interview, but my my story uh, also heavily involves dealing with uh, leukemia. Mm-hmm. So I actually missed my 7th grade, my 8th grade, most of my ninth, most of my 10th, and a lot of my 11th grade year of high school. Um, spent most of my senior year making up for the classes I would missed. Um, so after Being told I wasn't going to graduate on time with my graduating class and um, spending most of my senior year making up for lost credits, um, I actually graduated on time with the President's Award for Academic Achievement which was um, probably my biggest achievement in um, academics which I was very proud of. Mm -hmm. Um, I also got um, one of the, I got to wear a couple ribbons for the engineering courses because I got um, one of the highest grades from freshman to senior year. Um, with those classes as well. Um, but missing so much school, you know, I was I was burnt out and I didn't want to just dive into a four-year college right away, um, I sat down with my parents and was like, hey, you know, I need a break. I just busted my ass in high school and I want to step back and, you know, figure out what I want to do. So I took about a, you know, was planning on taking a year break from, from schooling, um, but was getting very bored. Um, my my sister, who I mentioned, um, my sister Heidi, uh, she and I are extremely close, and um, she was actually a senior in high school when I was uh, first diagnosed with leukemia, and she had just met her um, future husband, her first ever boyfriend. Um, he asked her to be his girlfriend on September sixth, two thousand eight, and I was diagnosed on September eighth, two thousand eight. And she was a senior. It was her first boy, first boyfriend, and there was just a lot of stuff going on. Um, she was in, you know, varsity soccer, and had all the, all of her life plans as well. Um, but you know, we asked him. We were like, hey, you know, this is a big thing. Um, you know, we understand. You don't have to be a part of it if you want to. If you want an out, you have it out. You have it out right now. And he was like, no, no, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I care about you guys. We're gonna, we're gonna stick through it. Um, and he kind of became like a second brother to me. His name's Nathan, um, and I love him. He's like my favorite person on the planet. Um, And uh, when I was out of high school, they had just gotten engaged, and they were living with us at the time. And because we were so close, you know, they were planning on moving out of the house, which was kind of a big hit to me. Um, You know, I never really envisioned a life without my sister in the same house as me. And she wanted me to have something to do, to kind of keep my mind off of her leaving because it was, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so she and my dad were in cahoots, and they actually signed me up for a two-week uh, like, intro class to culinary school. They were just like, we need you to do something. Go find something to do because you're stressing everybody out. <laughs> so we, uh, yeah, I joined this little two-week cooking class at the culinary school, and it was, I, three days later, I was like, this is amazing, and I want to do this. So I finished the class and um, was enrolled in culinary school two weeks later. Um, started out just doing, they had two programs there, they have a um, just a cooking course and then they have like a management mm-hmm. and cooking course where they um, separate. They break out the <laughs> the classes and the uh, classwork so you're not just stuck in a classroom or stuck in the kitchen all day. Um, so I started out with this the nine-month program which was all, all cooking um, and loved it. And right after I graduated from that class, I decided to roll into the management courses. But because I'd already done all the cooking stuff, at this point it was just management classes. So um, that was about a two-year program um, and I was just stuck in the classroom. And that's where I was introduced to the, the wine courses and um, kind of became my passion for me there. Okay, so
0: we're going to pick it back up there in a second, but obviously you mentioned childhood, leukemia, a big, big part of your upbringing and, and your life. So Tell me about that that portion of your life, and you obviously already mentioned how it sort of changed your idea for the future. Um, what else, sort of, did you take away? What 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 were the biggest sort of parts of that for, for what became the rest of your life?
1: Now that's also a very long story. Um, you know, I've talked about uh, my journey with cancer multiple different outlets, um, but I haven't yet come up with a way to like condense it. Um, but I'm just going to kind of start from the beginning, I guess, then, with it. Um, So September 8th, 2008, uh, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, I was just finishing uh, sixth grade and was moving into the seventh grade of middle school. And um, my dad and I had always taken a um, yearly camping trip together um, about a week before uh, school started just to kind of have some fun. And, you know, being 12 years old, you like, you know, running, throwing rocks, getting all dirty and wet and running up hills and all these things that, you know, throwing sticks in the fires and all the stuff. Um, But this camping trip I was just out of energy, didn't want to do anything, just want to sleep in the tent all day. Um, And back portion of this, um, I was also heavily involved in martial arts at the time. Um, And I was on track for uh, my first degree black belt. but I kept having back pains and kept just getting really burnt out and fatigued and you know my parents didn't really connect the dots with at the time, and I don't blame them for it. you know it's how, how would you know mm-hmm. that you know, oh, you're starting a new school year, oh, you're training for your black belt, you know you're oh, yes, you're tired, you're out of energy um, and so we never really like saw these as signs for something bad but uh, during this camping trip, um, I woke up one morning. Uh, with red dots all over my chest and all up my neck. Um, it was called the petechia rash and it's actually your internal blood vessels popping. And so we ended up calling uh, the emergency room that night and the nurse on the phone was like, yeah I think you should probably pack a bag. Um, you know, she probably knew what was going on but she's not at liberty to tell you that you're on over the phone that you have leukemia. Um, so we you know, were rushed to St. Vincent um, and I was diagnosed a couple hours later, um, was rushed to Legacy Emanuel, and that's kind of started my, my whole journey there. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I missed my, my entire seventh grade middle school year, uh, most of my eighth grade year, a lot of my ninth grade year, um, but it was uh, very life-changing, you know. being Being 12 years old and not knowing if you're going to have a life was kind of hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was told that I had uh, leukemia, I was like, okay, cool, like that's, I don't know what that means. Um, but you know, you hear things as a kid that you register in your brain and the doctor was, was telling me and my dad that I was going to lose my hair. And I was like, lose my hair? What? I thought I had leukemia. Like, th- what, what does that mean? And I was like, wait, I thought people with cancer lose their hair. And the doctor's like, yes, you you have cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when it kind of hit me. And I was like, oh. And I kind of shut down for a little bit. Um, I kicked my parents out of the room, didn't talk to doctors, didn't talk to social workers. Um, The only person I talked to was my sister um, because I just was processing a whole lot. And um, you know, going through chemotherapy was a whole journey of itself. I almost died two times. one, I was about um, probably weeks away from not making it if they hadn't caught it in time. Mm. But I was with, it was in remission within a week which was um, very, very good. Um, but I had a couple severe allergic reactions to some of the chemo meds. Um, one of them was on Thanksgiving. I was spent Thanksgiving in the ICU one evening um, or one year. Um, and you know, I had to have lots of different like back pokes and deep muscle leg shots and um, all the side effects from chemotherapy, you know, stress your body out, and there's all these weird things that, you know, only you can't really explain to people how they feel. Um, but that's kind of where my like early adolescence was when I was in high school. Uh, most of my friends didn't really know about it. I didn't want to like talk about it too much. Um, the people that did know, you know, were always there to help and everything, um, and. Well, I'm gonna beeline back to martial arts. Um, I had to stop my training, obviously. Um, I was one belt away from getting my black belt, um, and decided, you know, my wall probably not a good idea to keep training because I can't. Um, but my martial arts school was also a huge uh, support to our family, and they did multiple fundraisers as well to help with uh, medical bills and everything. Um, and we'll we'll touch talk, talk base on that later because that's also another long story. Normal is an interesting word to use when it comes to, to cancer. Um, there is no normal anymore and I've spent a lot of years trying to um, verbalize what that means and it's hard to describe to someone that, does it, that hasn't had it because it's not something that everyone understands. Um, but there is no normal anymore. Your normal is cancer at the time and then you never go back to what you wore before, before because everything's changed. Mm -hmm. Your outlook on life has changed, Um, your body's changed, your mindset has changed, Um, so your new normal is just moving forward. I was, because I was pretty young, um, I was 12 but I was on the older age for leukemia and I was heavily involved in Make-A-Wish, the Children's Cancer Association, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, um, all these like big-name fundraising companies and organizations um, I was used quite a bit as their like poster child so I was always doing interviews um, to help create funding. Um, I'm still very heavily involved in them now. Uh, I actually operate on the two largest board of directors for the Portland area. Um, I'm on the executive board for the Children's Cancer Therapy and Development Institute so I use food, wine, um, and education as a way to create funding for children's cancer. Um, currently I have six different wineries involved on creating private labels where all the proceeds are donated to creating funds for childhood cancer awareness. Um, You know, working as a chef, uh, I did CCTDI, Children's Cancer Therapy Development Institute, uh, the first ever fundraiser, and we ended up raising almost fifty thousand dollars for a four course meal um, with wine pairings that I had done. I've also done dinners for the Sam Day Foundation which is a huge gala that happens and that's like a paddle raise auction and I got auctioned off um, yearly to do a dinner for them. Uh, Four course plated with wine pairings for 14 people, um, raising a total of almost 38,000 for both of those as well. So not working as a chef um, as a career, I still use my talent as a chef to give back to those communities which is awesome because I still get to be creative and have fun but I don't have to do it as a job anymore. So you talked about getting into
0: culinary school and sort of it being a kind of a light switch that went right off for you as a, as a, as a path for you. So tell me about coming out of school and getting into the culinary world um, before wine uh, and what your experiences were like there.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, part of the reason why I decided culinary school um, was the right fit for me was, you know, something my, um, my dad had told me, uh, and he was saying, you know my dad you know provided for us um, a ton as a kid, um, even through all the chemo and things. Um, I didn't realize until we were older, like about now, probably the last five years or so, um, like how much they had actually provided for us. Um, you know we were we weren't considered like a rich family. Um, you know, going out for us was like Applebee's and um, getting a soda was a, was a big deal. Um, you know we always had hamburger helper, we always we weren't poor, but we weren't like you know. There's a lot of things you don't see, realize as a kid until you're older. Um, But my dad had done a lot of jobs that he hated um, because it was just good money for the family. And he had wished that he had found something in his life that he was passionate about that wasn't just stuck behind an office all day um, punching in numbers on a computer or something. And he was like, you know what, you should need to do what makes you happy. Um, You know, you don't want to look back on your life you know 25 years from now and think oh, like I I just wasted my entire life because I just did what was smart and not what made me happy um, he said you know do what makes you happy and the money will come later and that's you know I don't you know I like working as a chef and working as a sommelier because of pays well. because I like doing what I do mm-hmm. it's, it's fun for me and I, I have the joy of going to work every day and creating food and opening wine and I don't have to dread going to an office and punching in numbers to work as a civil engineer, which we may have paid more, but I wouldn't have been happy in the, in the long run of it. Yeah. Um, so I started out, my first culinary job, I was working as a line cook for the reserve vineyards and golf course. Um, I was actually working there while I was in culinary school, and that was a ton of fun. Um, that was probably one of the hardest kitchen jobs I ever had, um, but, it was so fast-paced and there's so much camaraderie in the kitchen that it's just, it's just fun mm-hmm. um, and you know my executive chef at the time uh, his name was Jim Weatherford um, he's still a, a, like an awesome mentor of mine and a close friend of mine um, but we had a great couple two years there um, it was pretty intense I remember one Mother's Day you know it's like in the movies you just keep seeing tickets coming, coming out and it just... But everyone was just rocking out in the kitchen. We had music playing and everyone had a role to do and it was such a mess and like super stressful but it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I liked it. It was just, it was just fun. Um, even though the work was hard, um, you got to be creative and just do fun things. Um, and so shortly after there, um, I had the opportunity to go to Shanghai. Um, I was interviewing for a, a sous, chef, sous, sous chef position at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Shanghai. Um, so I went to Shanghai for a month um, with my uncle and interviewed with the hotel. Um, I was actually pretty on track to to work but um, there was a visa complication. Uh, the hotel needed I think a 10-year visa and they could only support a five or something so I ended up falling through. Um, but I still was in Shanghai enjoying amazing food and, you know, tasting Bao traditionally and uh, learning how to make noodles and uh, tasting all these different f- uh, flavor profiles and cuisines and different ways of creating food that I've never really experienced. And um, so I kind of used that as a basis for how I like to create food now. Mm-hmm. So I was trained in classic fine dining French cuisine, but I like to use a lot of... Um, like Asian influences in my cuisine, so French technique with Asian flavors is kind of my what I like to do. Um, after coming back from, from Shanghai, uh, I took a job as the sous chef for um, Chris King Precision Components um, or King Cycle Group. Um, they're a manufacturer in Portland and they make uh, bottom brackets and hubs for bicycles and they actually uh, supply most of the Tour de France with their their, um, their hardware. Mm-hmm. But everyone's like, "You work worked at a bike shop, what?" <laughs> um, yes, but they had a uh, private cafe that they used for their employees. So I was um, there alongside of uh, Robert McSpadden, who was the executive chef, and uh, he and I were in charge of doing uh, lunch and or breakfast and lunch, and then like a snack uh, for almost one hundred and eighty employees and did that daily. And it was a very small kitchen, um, but we had a lot of fun being creative. It was pretty much just like it's like what Nike does. Um, so it's actually really high in food. Like I'd make like duck confit. Um, you know, we'd do like steaks. We It wasn't just like cafe food. Mm-hmm. So it was really a, a really great way to, to work as a chef and be creative there. Um, and that was, I was there for about two years. And at that point is kind of when I decided I didn't want to cook anymore. Um, you know I'd also, during this time between uh, Shanghai uh, the reserve golf course and Chris King um, was when I did a lot of the dinners for um, the children's cancer companies that I worked with. Um, so that's kind of where I was pretty heavily involved in food. Um, but there was always this, you know, ringing in the back of my head of ooh, buying courses and I don't really know what made the transition, honestly. Um, I just kind of, I don't know if I hit a, wasn't really a breaking point, I just was getting burnt out and I wanted to do something something different and eventually I was like, I'm, I'm going to leave the food industry and I want to go and take wine courses and that's kind of where it all started.
0: So once you start down that path of wine courses, tell me about that, obviously there's a lot of different paths you can take, a lot of different sort of trainings and courses you can take. How did you sort of navigate what you wanted to do, and, and at that point, did you have a goal in mind? Did you have uh,
1: an end point in mind for what that training would lead you? Um, so I knew I wanted to be a SOM. Uh, I didn't know how I was going to do it, and, but I knew I wanted to. So when I left Chris King, I actually uh, took a job uh, pouring wine at Argyle, out here in the valley, and that was probably one of the best jobs of my life. Um, I was only there for two months. But, um, well, okay, backtrack a little bit. Uh, While I was working as a chef, reserve vineyards and golf course, um, Chris King and Shanghai and all these things, um, I would come back home and just start studying wine. I'd go through at least two chapters a day. That was my goal. Um, You know, any free time I had was was spent studying because that was about the year that I had after I graduated where I did all self-studies. Um, the program I decided to go through was the Court of Master of Sommeliers, um because they're known as the most elite psalms in the in the world, and uh, their program is, you know, unsurpassed to any other program in the the country, in my opinion. Um, it's just super intense, and everyone respects the court, um, and that's the court the way that I wanted to go. But the court's interesting. There's no there's no classwork that you take. Um, it's different than WSET. There's no um, there's no like college courses. You don't have an instructor. You don't have someone that's holding your hand along the way. Um, you essentially just study your butt off until you feel like you're ready to approach the court and take your exam. And so you just have to learn as much as you can. Blind taste. Learn regions. Um, study service. And eventually, just see if you pass or not. Um, so it was a lot of a lot of. Just work. I mean, they also have study guides, of course. Of like, here's what you should possibly know, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean they're gonna ask you that on the tests or anything. Um, but uh, when I was working at Argyle, um, that's when I decided to go take my exams, and I was pretty much ready to take them at 20 years old. But I wasn't. You can't take the class until you're 21, so it was just a waiting game. Um, but I decided to when I was at Argyle to go and uh, and take my take my exams. So I left there. Um, went to Reno to take my my exams. It was a, a two day class. Um, and came back and it was kind of interesting. As soon as I got back I started getting like more and more offers from different restaurants and companies to um, just keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I was only at Argyle for two months before I left there. I um, had the opportunity to open up a, a brand new hotel um, in Portland, uh, the Canopy by Hilton. So I was part of their opening team, um, but Argyle was like my probably my funnest job I've ever had. I had a lot of friends that worked there that I'd met while I was there, and it was a crazy, busy summer, and it was just popping bubbles, and pouring, and just going, and it was constant go out. and um, it was intense and fast paced, but I loved it, and it was just it was fun, um, but it was time to move on. So I took the job as the um, dining room supervisor for uh, Canopy by Hilton and worked there for about six months or so, um, helped develop um, the program there. And then got another better offer. And uh, left there and went to go open another restaurant in Milwaukee. Um, it's called Riverview, and it was a $17 million estate. Um, that I helped develop uh, the bar and beverage program for. Um, designed their wine cellar, their cocktail program, their wines by the glass, um, their non-alcoholic beverage program, and I was also in charge of staff, staff education for the three locations I had as well. I um, was there for close to a year, and then um, that restaurant went through a lot of changes. Um, nothing I want to say on camera, but they went through some changes, and so I ended up leaving there and took a job to work for Domain Serene. Um, that's where I met um, my two friends, uh, Gregory and TJ, who are also both Psalms. Um, and when I worked, started there, uh, I met Greg. He was um, kind of at the top of the associates. Um, everyone really respected him and kind of knew, like he knew his stuff. And they had an experience there called the 45th Parallel which was a um, four-course tasting with eight wine pairings, uh, one from France and one from Oregon that they would do a comparison with. And it was kind of an all-inclusive experience and there was only, uh, at the time, two people that it, that could do it and it was Greg and I don't you know who that person was. Um, but having my food and wine background and working as a chef, um, Greg and I kind of took over the 45th Parallel experience and he and I were the only two that really did it. So. Um, you know, a lot of the members would sign up to do it and it was about a three hour experience depending on how, how many people you had. Um, and Hugh and I were, became really good friends and we were both very competitive as well. So we were all, you know, chewing each other up about, you know, sales and club membership sign ups and who got more, whatever. Um, you know, on a monthly basis it was either, you know, I was more in club and he was more in sales or vice versa. Um, but we had a ton of fun. Um, that was also very fast paced and really intense. Um, the most we ever did was 58 45th parallels in a single day, and just the two of us, because um, they were understaffed and the concierge team uh, extremely overbooked the 45th parallels um, by about 15 people. And so at that point, it was literally like running a restaurant, because Domain Serena had separate rooms. They had the um, the room for 45th Parallels, they have their tasting room, the main tasting room, then they have their members' lounge. And so we always ran the 45ths and that was like running a restaurant because we had pretty much a full dining room, sat and everyone had different courses, everyone had different wines and he and I were just bussing it, just go mode. Um, again super fast paced, a lot of fun, learned a lot. Um, and you know, I would have been at Domain Serene for probably quite a bit longer unless it wasn't for COVID, um, which, you know, everyone knows about that. But honestly, that's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, COVID kind of changed my career path because um, I still would have been at Domain Serene working as an associate if I didn't get the opportunity to leave. And so once COVID hit, I was just looking for a job like everybody else, Um, went through, I think I applied for close to 42 different positions all across the United States, I didn't even care like where it was, I was like I'll go to New York, I'll go to California, I just need to work as a psalm somewhere Um, and heard nothing about crickets but was fumbling through like Post or Indeed or something and finally found uh, a job for executive chef at Ponzi. I was like, okay, well, I haven't worked as a chef in probably about a year and a half at this point, but I'm like, I have the experience for it, I'll just, you know, I'll throw my hat in and see, what, see how I do. Um, and Ponzi was only about a 15 minute drive from my house at the time, so it was pretty close. But I heard back from Louisa Ponzi in like an hour. And she was like, oh, this is amazing, like, we, yeah, please, can you come by and like, you know, cook for us? We want to meet you. I was like, sure. She was like, all right, here's hundred bucks. Can you do a three-course meal for for um, uh, myself, Maria, my sister, um, and our current uh, chef? And I was like, sure. So did uh, went shopping, did a dinner for lunch for them, and they hired me on the spot as their executive chef. I was like, cool. So I was there for um, for a little bit. Um, you know, I managed their uh, tasting program as far as uh, all the snacks that they did, the char- charcuterie, charcuterie boards, and their winemaker dinners and events, and. Um, I was just kind of creating and having fun. That was also a really fun job. Um, that was just me though. I was a tiny kitchen. So I did all the, all the things. Um, and my, my friend TJ who I had met at Domain Serena as well, he joined there about a year after I'd started there and um, Greg and TJ um, at the time they weren't both psalms but they were both very knowledgeable. Um, and TJ was um, kind of like, he didn't really know what he thought about me when he first met me. I know Greg didn't like me because he told me like t- <laughs> four years later that he didn't like me when I started because he was like, who's this kid that knows everything? Um, but we became really good friends. Um, and he's also competitive, so. Uh, but I remember my first interaction with TJ. Um, he came into the, the tasting room, and TJ's obsessed with coffee. Like, he's to coffee what I am to wine he just loves coffee, and all coffees have their own flavor profiles, their own tasting aromas and all it's like it's very much like wine tasting. And he comes into the tasting room and at that point we had, we had probably 40 associates working for Domain Serene, um, the summers were insane. And so they had a lot of staff, so it was all new people coming in and out of the room, their tasting room. But TJ comes in and he's drinking coffee and I was like from across the room I get to smell it. And I knew it was Ethiopian coffee because it smelled like blueberries, it's a very like common nose for Ethiopian coffee and I'm like is that coffee he's like yeah I'm like is it Ethiopian he's like yeah <laughs> I'm like oh cool and at that point it was like it was inter-friendship um he was like dude how the what how did you know that I can smell it um and so TJ and I became really good friends and he um kind of wanted to become a Islam as well so I kind of did what my instructor did and I took TJ and Gregory under my wing and started a study group together for both of them and trained them to both take their psalm exams as well. And so we became, became, became kind of the three amigos. Um, you know, after, um, after Domain Serene COVID hit, um, TJ um, took a job as um, working as a server at the herb farm in Winneville, Washington and then uh, Greg and I kind of lost touch a little bit as well. Um, but TJ was visiting from uh, Seattle, and he was like, "Hey, where should we go to dinner, dinner, dude?" Because he wanted to see me. And I was like, "Well, let's go to Jory." He's like, mm, "Yeah, we've been there a few times. You know, it's great, but like, where should we go?" I'm like, "Let's go to the, let's go to the Joe Palmer House. Never never been there." Um, and working in tasting rooms, you know, everyone always asks you, "Oh, where should we go to dinner? We're visiting from out of town." Oh, we'll go to Jory. Go to and Lady. Go to Thistle, go to Joe Palmer House, and we, you know. You just know that these restaurants are amazing, even though I've never dined here. So we decided to just go check it out. And so we came in, had dinner here one evening, um, and we had did the omakase menu, which is a, a ten-course tasting. Um, and sitting there afterwards, I um, was like, I want to, I want to work here. Like I want this to be my career. And. Uh, Chef Chris came out and talked to us, and he had somewhat known who I am a little bit in the industry. Um, but he kind of sat me down. Um, I told him I wanted to work here, and we had like a, I don't even know, five-minute interview. But his, his way of talking to people and understanding um, like their motives and their work ethic, he, he just knows people. And so after about five minutes, he, he knew right off the bat that he wanted me to work here, too. And so he offered me a job on the spot, again, um, as a part-time som, And I accepted it, but I was still working as the executive chef at Ponzi because it was harvest season. And they had 33 people working harvest that I was in charge of making lunches for daily. And I didn't, if I just left, then they would have no one to cook for them. And so I was like, yes, I'll work here, but I also have to continue this. Once harvest is done, I'll come work full time for Palmer House. Um, so I was working as the executive chef at Ponzi from about 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. doing lunches and then beelining it to Dayton from uh, about 2 o'clock to midnight or 2 a.m. depending on how how long guests were here. Did that for about six months. Um, I kept trying to quit Ponzi um, and they kept giving me more money and telling me to stay and, and it was, that was a pretty intense six months or so, um, a lot of fun still. Um, but again, I was getting burnt out and I was, you know, I don't want to work as a chef anymore. That's why I left this industry because I was just, I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, so eventually I had, I had to cut the ties with Ponzi um, and decided to continue working here full time. Uh, was here for not too long before the second COVID wave hit. And we were closed for six months. We closed on November 22nd and then reopened on March 9th, um, 2020? No, 2019. 2021. 2021? 2021. 2021? Wow. I get the years confused. Things are lots of change. Um, but came back um, to Joel Palmer House um, with pretty much a brand new crew. Um, a lot of the staff that had worked here um, had gone to other places and um, I kind of helped Chris build the restaurant again from the ground up um, as their lead SOM and dining room manager. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got promoted when I came back um, and helped kind of take over um, and oversee the wine program, um, the staff trainings, the dining room itself um, and this has been Popular best show I've ever had, and I'll be here for the next 10 to 15 years. Um, But not having a floor psalm anymore, because that was my position, um, I tracked down uh, my buddy Greg, and because I was like, I need another psalm. But I didn't know a lot of psalms in the valley, but I knew that he was still here, and I knew that, you know, I trained him and taught him a lot, and knew that he knew almost everything I knew. Um, And I teach him all my secrets, of course, but. so found him and brought him on as the floor SOM, and he's been here just over two years as well. And now I am.
0: Amazing. So I'm curious about uh, going back to all of your SOM training uh, and exams and then working as a SOM. Tell me how what you feel your role is. What is, what is the
1: SOM's role in a restaurant like this, and how do you approach it? That's a good question. Um, our restaurant is very different than most restaurants operate for SOMs. Um, for one, I, there's not a lot of restaurants in the Valley that even have more than one SOM. Uh, usually you just have a beverage director and a couple people that help pour wine. Um, but we have the country's largest selection, of Oregon Pinot Noir, which we are very proud of. Uh, we have just over 500 different Oregon Pinots, um, totals in about uh, 3,000 to 4,000 bottles, depending on the season in our cellar. Um, so a massive selection of wines. Um, Chef Chris has been developing the wine program here for the last twenty six years since the restaurant um, has been uh, been here in Dayton. It uh, wasn't until about a month ago that he, um, you know, called up my, my my list for the first time, which is a which is a big moment. You know he you know he's given me a lot of control and a lot of responsibility for um, how service runs, um, all the trainings with the staff, the menu, um, how we talk about the food. Um, Just the way that we do service um, and the the wine program. Mm -hmm. So close to about 85% of our entire wine program is what I've brought on since I've started. Uh, I've tasted nearly 85% of our entire program as well including some of the wines that Chris has had on the past. Um, But our our program is unique because um, it's authentically Oregon. Uh, We have nothing from around the world. We don't have any wines from Germany, we have no wines from France, nothing from Italy. we have a couple of, you know, a couple of one or two bottles of champagne. We have a couple of ports, some, you know, um, But we don't serve anything other than Oregon Pinot and Oregon Chardonnay. Um, and a lot of our guests that dine here dine here because they know about our wine program, about our food, and they're here to have an experience. They're here to taste something from Oregon that no one else has tasted before. Um, you know. A lot of the larger restaurants in the valley have a very decent selection of Oregon pinot, but we carry um, a lot of exclusive wines here. Wines that aren't available in tasting rooms anymore. uh, Wines that aren't even uh, represented anywhere. Um, Small producers only make 100 cases or less a year. Um, Vertical selections from wines. um, We have a vertical of 1998 through 2021 of Shea. Uh, We are the only restaurant that ever has that. Um, Every vertical we have on our program, um, is only available here, they've never done it for another restaurant including Authentique, Britain, uh, Domaine Drew and Louise, um, Thomas we have, um, Lemelson, Alexana, and these are, those are just a few, mm-hmm. but these are all complete verticals um, that's only available at the Palmer House. So when we, when we talk to our guests, um, close to I would say 85% of our entire clientele is out of state. Um, you'd think we get more locals, but um, it's actually a lot of out-of-state. We get a lot of New York, a lot of Texas, a lot of Chicago, California, Washington. Um, and they're all here to enjoy Oregon Pinot. So once our guests get seated, um, our role is to approach them and really just have a conversation. You know, what do you like? You know, what are you here to enjoy? Um, where have you tasted before? And we start to talk to them about what their flavor profiles are, they want something you know, more terroir-driven? Do you want something more fruit-centric? Do you want something older? Do you want something younger? You know, do you like more acid? Do you like more tannin? Do you like lighter styles, darker styles? And we have, we have it all. So we, we ask them about their parameters. We like to see what they like to enjoy um, and help find an amazing bottle to pair with their meal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coming from New York, someone, you know, they see probably Erath, maybe some Argyle, they probably see a little bit of um, Lamp Valley vineyards, they probably maybe see some Adelsheim, um, but they don't know who Thomas is, they don't know who Delebu is, they don't know who Authentique is, these are all producers that are very very small and aren't even distributed out of country or out of Oregon even um, nor outside of this restaurant and these are producers that we like to focus on, small producers um, that are only available within the area that you're here. That's why our program's so large. We have relationships we've developed over the last 26 years with all the wineries in the valley because um, we send guests to them, they send guests to us and it's just this really nice like cohesive um, team effort. You know we're not like Napa Valley. It's not cutthroat. Um, you know you go tasting and oh where should we go next and the wineries will tell you who to go to next based on what you've had. They're not going to say oh we'll stay here we'll don't go anywhere else. You know you go to a restaurant and oh i'm very sorry we we're, we're fully booked this evening um but you know go go check out pain and lady go check out Okta go check out the jewelry um you know our our chef is very fr- close friends with a lot of the the other chefs in the area and yes we're all you know fighting for the same clientele and guests that come through the valley um but it's not competitive you know we're not here to like show anybody up or anything it's it's a it's a um very cohesive network that this industry in, in Oregon is and it's, that's why it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so our roles here at Psalms is really to, um, really all about the guests. It's what they want. Um, we want to find the most perfect Pinot Noir and based on what they've been tasting, what they haven't have been tasting, uh, maybe they've never tasted the 1998 Pinot Noir and blows their socks off and they say, well this is amazing, where can we get more? Well go check out the winery. Or sometimes, you know, the wineries, um, you know, Archery, Archery Summit, for instance, uh, we have 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99 Arcus on our program, and they're not available at the winery because those vintages are, aren't sold there. They don't have the quantity to, to give to guests. So someone goes there and tastes and says, oh, wow, we're trying the 2017 Arcus and this is absolutely fantastic. Where can we get older wines? And they say, go to the Palmer House. They have a full vertical of our wines there. So it's it's very like, we we'll love it. It's very homey feeling. So building a list like that or
0: curating a list like that, tell me about how you approach something like that where you are tasting all of these wines. How are, what are you looking for to add to a portfolio? How do you sort of keep it, um, keep it fresh while also keeping it classic and, and how do you build those, how do you find new wineries that are out there, new producers that are out there?
1: Um, new producers usually find us, um, you know, we, I try and stay very, um, very current on what's happening in the valley as far as who's being bought up by French producers. You know, Chateau St. Michel just purchased uh, A to Z and Rex Hill, um, Constellation just bought up Lingua Franca, um, you know, Rocco just sold, Beaufort has ties to France now as well. So there's always something happening in the valley, um, whether it's new grapes being planted or new vintages coming out. Um, and we try and stay very, um, adamant on our feet about what's happening in the valley and how that changes the restaurant, um, but I, you know, I have probably ten tastings scheduled throughout the week with different producers, um, and, you know, it's hard to get everybody on the program, I would like to if I could. Um, but we're still a f- small family-run restaurant, and we don't have you know millionaires backing our our program. Um, so what we bring on is we usually do the bulk of our purchasing in the summertime when we have the guest clientele that's helping fund that. I mean, obviously wines aren't cheap, um, but we also have some favorites that we continue purchasing on you know day in day out because these are wines that sell that guests love. Um, but the older vintages, like the 98's, 99's, we don't carry more than a few bottles at a time. Um, those are safe for those you know, specific guests that really want something extraordinary, extraordinarily special. Mm-hmm. that can't find anywhere else. Um, but our, our list ranges from, you know, about $50 a bottle to close to $900 a bottle. Um, and again, just talking to the guests, figuring out what they, what they like. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's some producers in the Valley that I've tasted where I'm just blown away with how amazing it is for how small their production is. Um, one of the newer ones being is De La um, We're actually doing a winemaker dinner with them uh, in April next year. But he makes less than 100 cases a year. Um, you know, it's all pomard and he farms up, from, farms himself from the Shehla Mountains. But he came in one day and just poured me some wine and I was like, this is absolutely incredible. So I'm, I'm going to buy your entire portfolio and bring on the program. Um, there's also some wineries, so I'm not gonna mention obviously, but um, you know, they'll come in and they'll taste for us and I'm like, okay, this is, you know, these are good, um, but these aren't really gonna fit our program. Um, and that's, that's a that's a hard thing to say to someone. Um, I don't really like telling wineries no because they go through all the effort to come out and do a tasting, but you know, there's 900 wineries now, maybe probably more than that, there's probably close to a thousand wineries uh, between here in Portland, and there's wineries that are doing extraordinarily good things, and there's some that are you know making okay wine, and then there's some where they're, they're just it's, no, um, which is hard to say. But um, that's the interesting thing about Oregon, though, is there's no there's no classification system in Oregon yet. You know, we're not like Burgundy; we don't have a, a crew system. There's no Village Premier Cru and Grand Cru wine, wineries here. But that being said all the producers in the valley, all the Soms, all the winemakers know what vineyards are creating quality fruit and you'll constantly see these wineries purchasing fruit from these wineries or vineyards. I mean you constantly see wine from Highland, you see wine from Shea, you see wine from Freedom Hill, um, you see wine from Nyssa, um, you know, Myrto vineyard, these are all Britain, you know, these are all our wines that, um, that are being purchased throughout the valley because they're creating one-of-a-kind, high-quality, terroir-driven fruit. Um, so it's interesting. Um, when I'm tasting wines here in the program, what I'm looking for is a few different things. Um, one, you know, obviously just being flavor. You know, it has, to, it has to smell good. If it doesn't smell good, it tastes good, I don't want to buy it. Um, I'm also looking, looking at the ageability of it. Um, you know, our, our chalor is massive, and we have such a huge back inventory and stock of wines. It's amazing. Um, but you know, aging potential is definitely a thing. If there's a wine that we just absolutely love, we'll buy younger vintages of it and hold back. We'll you know, maybe have it on our master wine list as we have 12 bottles available, but only six are being sold because we want to hold those six for another 10 years. And every year that we hold it, we can charge more for it because we've been selling for it for, it, for you for the last 15 years and it's been aging in our cellar and getting better. Um, so aging potential is one of them. Um, also acid. Um, I think most somms around the valley agree that they like acid in their wines, um, which is a little um, more just on my personal palate, but our food is really rich at the Palmer House and having something that's acid driven to help cut through that is very nice, especially Pinot Noir, but because our list is only Pinot, it's not hard finding Pinos that are really um, acidic. That's just generally the typicity of Pinot Noir. Um, and I also look for, you know, working here for two years, we get guests that constantly ask for very consistent styles. You know, I get people that ask us, oh, we want something that's, um, that's dark fruit, that's earthy, um, we like a little spice characteristic to it, and we want it to be under $100 a bottle. Okay, cool. Um, we don't have a ton of producers that make those styles. Um, so when I find ones that do, I like to bring them on because I know our guests are constantly asking for. You know, we get guests that ask for, oh, we want something that's lighter bodied, you know, less than 10, or, sorry, less than, you know, 13 percent alcohol, more red fruit driven, more burgundy and more driven driven, um, you know, what do you have in, in style? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll recommend like something like Brickhouse or Berkshire or de la boo or authentique because of their styles that they're asking for. Um, so I you know, I, when I'm looking at wines, I like to keep our our options for these different styles that people are looking for open in almost every price range you're looking for. You know, if they want to spend five hundred dollars on a bottle of wine for that style, cool. If they want to spend less than a hundred, cool. You know, the best wine in the world is the wine you like the best. And it's our job as Somms to educate our guests and not try and you know, used car salesmen and shove wine on their throat because they're trying to make a dollar on it.
0: So, as you've uh, obviously you're, you're pretty plugged into the Oregon wine industry, so tell me about and your perspective of how wines here have changed since you've been aware of them um, and how the last couple of years specifically have sort of impacted the industry. Uh, where do you see the industry standing now in 2022?
1: So, I have a theory, Um, you know, Oregon is a lot of history in Oregon, but not a a ton of history in Oregon. We're still technically the youngest wine-growing region in the world. Um, At this point, I think we've only been making wine for around 52 years, um, which is really, really young for a region to be growing. and it seems like every single year the wines change because we're learning something new about Oregon as a whole, um, and the styles have changed based on one, you know, the technologies available to us since you know the 1970s, um, what guests are constantly asking for for styles, um, and the vineyards obviously changing just due to the weather, but the styles in Oregon. Like I mentioned, we don't have a we don't have a Grand Cru system here. Um, I don't think Oregon's ever going to be classified um, as as such. I think it'd be interesting to create a classification system for Oregon, um, and I have a theory about that as well. But um, you know, Oregon is very similar to Burgundy. Um, you know, we both started out the same way. Both of our valleys were once underwater. And then they became you know, raised up out of the ground, creating this you know what we see as the valley today. Um, but we don't have restrictions. There's no alcohol restrictions. There's no yield restrictions. They're not telling us how much um, you know when to pick, when to ferment, all these things like they do in Burgundy. Um, Oregon wines are really based on the individual producer and individual winemakers' interpretation of Oregon Pinot Noir. If you ask anybody what is Oregon Pinot no one's gonna have an answer for you they're all gonna say something different because Oregon doesn't have a specific style Um, you ask oh what's the typicity of Burgundy you're like okay high acid red fruit you know funky Burgundy and it's got petrichor and you know bramble and rotting soil and you know, sometimes a little (laughs) pooey but that's that's the style that's what people like Um, you know you ask People, what the Oregon style is, and there's no answer. Is it red fruit? Is it black fruit? Is it, you know, lighter body, darker? Is it high alcohol, medium alcohol, low alcohol? There, there's no style. It really is based on the producer. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about it is, you know, wineries or vineyards like Shea, that have been here since the early '80s, that sell most of their fruit. I think at this point they sell it to about 24 different producers. Um, Every producer that purchases shea makes a different style of shea based on their own representation of what they think shea should be tasting like, including shea themselves. So, um, you know, if you did a vertical of shea, if you tasted, you know, shea winery, shea vineyard, um, Berksham shea, Penrash shea, Kenwright shea, Double Zero shea, um, these are all going to taste very different because every winemaker makes their wines differently. Double um, Zero is lighter bodied, more red fruit driven, you know, aging fora. Uh, Bergstrom is more Burgundy and lighter bodied, um, you know, less alcohol um, and more terroir centric. Then you have Ken Wright that makes the more extracted style, a little bit darker, a little more oak treatment to them. Then you have Shea that makes their own wines, you know, they do like a more rapper side of picking, you know, 40% new French oak, a little, um, they're all just very different. Um, So Oregon is very interesting when it comes to talking about the wines here in the valley. Um, you know as far as the last couple years have been, um, we've been seeing a more Burgundian approach in my opinion to how the valley has been changing. Um, a lot of wineries are taking more approach into creating um, high quality fruit versus more manipulation in the winery. Um, you know, what, what are we at? The heart of winemaking, we're agriculturalists and we're chemists. You know, you can't have good wine without good fruit and you can't make good wine without um, from that good fruit without no understanding the concept behind making wine and the chemistry behind it. So it's a nice balance between that. Um, but I feel like I've been seeing lots and lots more producers pulling back the use of new French oak, um, pulling back on the manipulation in the winery and just letting the wine uh, naturally ferment and just show for itself, and let the let the the grapes speak essentially, mm-hmm. um, which is you know a more pure style of making wine in my opinion. Uh, Pinot is a really delicate, thin skin, fi- finicky grape, um, and the less influence you have on it, I think it creates a much higher quality wine. Um, now that being said, there's still some producers that make extraordinary Pinots that have more oil content and. You know, they're doing all these really awesome things, which is great, um, but we've been seeing a more, a more Burgundian approach, in my opinion, um, especially with all the French influences in the Valley now. I mean, we just had Bollinger bought, uh, bought up Ponzi, I just mentioned Beaufort has French ties, Double Zero has French ties now. Um, you know, all these, you're seeing all, a lot more European influence on the Oregon wineries, um, the last couple of years being pretty interesting, um, a little bit hotter than the normal and um you know not to mention the the fires in 2020 which was a hit to oregon as a whole um there's a there's a fine line between you know letting letting the wines speak for themselves because that's just the terroir that it was for that year um you know one of my favorite producers is nick keeler um, with authentique and we have a full vertical of his wines 11 2011 through uh, 2021 and his approach to winemaking is he wants, he wants the vintages to show for what the vintages are because that's what makes wine unique. You know, there's producers that do recipes. You know, they try and to make the wine taste the same every single year. Um, it doesn't matter what the vintage is, but that's their style, that's cool. Um, but being a more pure style, you know, you want, you want the acid to show in 2011 because that was such a cold vintage. Um, 2012 was, you know, the Goldilocks year. You want that wine to show for itself. You know, 2013, was extremely wet and a little bit, uh, you know, waterlogged and the wine's a little bit lighter and a little more green. That's what they want to show because that was 2011. You know, 14 was super hot and jammy and dark and attractive and that's what the wine should show. You know, 16 was super hot and tannic and that's what the wine should show. 20 was smoky, you know, <laughs> it was a lot of fire. Um, but is that, do we want to represent that? In the vintage, you know, technically smoke taint is a, is a fault in a wine. So a lot of producers um, didn't declare vintages in 2020 because they just didn't want to serve the wines. But some producers are still making 2020s because that's what the vintage represents. Um, you know, 2022, this, the year we're in now, it, and 21 actually, um, were fantastic vintages. Uh, 2021, I've been told, was from all the winemaker friends of mine, was nearly as good, if not better, than 2012. Um, It's one of the best vintages on record that we've ever had. Um, Amazing yields, great quality fruit, um, almost no uh, like no, uh, no complications in the vineyards or anything like that. Um, You know, this current year, 2022, um, we got hit pretty hard with frost in the beginning. Um, But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, we saw about a 30 percent loss for the entire valley, but um, with how hot it's been the last couple of years. You know, we've been picking grapes and harvesting in August and September. That's so frickin' early for picking Pinot Noir. Like, where's the hang time? You know, we, we want these wines to sit on the vines as long as possible to develop you know, fruit and concentration. And um, having a having a frost this year, we actually pushed back butt break another month or so. Um, and it helped us have a longer hang time on the grapes, because now the, we're actually harvesting in October this year, which is crazy. We, I don't think we've harvested in October in, I don't know, five years since I've been in the Valley. Um, working in the Somme here, it's just like, 2022 is, is also an incredible vintage. Um, it's, i have been told is it's amazing fruit, and it's gonna make some amazing wines, and they're pretty concentrated. Um, and we had a little bit, yes, well, less yield for sure, but uh, the wines are gonna be amazing. So with all that said,
0: and obviously you,
1: you have a very nice
0: um, sort of backdated memory of, all, of those, all those vintages from all the wines you've tasted, uh, where do we go next? What does what, what the future hold for Oregon wine? All of the changes, as you've said, all the people buying in, all the money here, all the influence here, uh, what comes next for the Oregon wine industry?
1: You know, I haven't thought too much about that, actually. Um, I'm kind of a day-by-day person. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oregon wine—I'm uh, curious to see. Um, I'm—I think Chardonnay is the next big thing here in Oregon. Um, it's already pretty big. You know, that's the two—it's the two major grapes in the valley. You know, we plant Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, just like Burgundy does. But um, Chardonnay doesn't have the recognition that Pinot Noir does, quite yet. And there's a lot of producers out there that are trying to make that. So, you know, I don't want I don't want Oregon to turn into Napa. Um, I think it's moving towards that. Unfortunately, um, with all the producers and all the money coming into the valley, and people being bought up and sold, and um, you know, what, what's interesting is we're starting to see a lot of the like original, like namesake winemakers in the valley starting to retire, or sell, or give their properties to. Um, their sons or daughters or whatever. So we're seeing a new generation of winemaking. So we're moving out of like the uh, the generation of the start of the organ industry into more of the generation that's going to continue to grow the organ industry. Um, I'm We're starting to see younger and younger winemakers, you know, younger Soms, um And it's a it's a new era for, for wine. We all have different ideas, different approaches and um, different technologies coming into the valley that their parents didn't have, um, new ideas that they didn't have, and it's interesting. I don't really know if I have an answer for that yet, mm. for what Oregon's going to look like in the next couple years. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be good, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some other grapes being planted uh, more widely throughout here, um, because it's basically getting, getting hotter every single year. Um, you know, it wasn't as hot in two thousand sixteen, but it is still getting warmer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would I would I wouldn't even be surprised to start seeing Nebbiolo pop up more in the valley. Um, you know, maybe some even more Syrahs and cabs and things like that. Um, there's already a few producers that produce Nebbiolo. Um, Cameron makes Nebbiolo. Um, I mean, I know Luisa Palmieri just planted Nebbiolo as well. Montenor makes Nebbiolo, um, and I don't know. I think it could be the next the next. New thing. Um, I'm worried about Chardonnay. I want it to become big. I'm not a huge fan of Chardonnay myself. I don't seek out Chardonnays, but um, I understand high-quality Chardonnay, and you don't want this much heat for that. Um, you want it to be more, you know, more Burgundian in style. Unless that's not what we want. Unless we want it to change and create our own style of Chardonnay. Because, like I mentioned with Pinot, you know, what's working Pinot? We don't have a, we don't have a style for it yet. I think that could be the new thing for Chardonnay. We don't have a style for it yet. Um, you know, do we, do we want to continue making wines in the, you know, the old-fashioned way, like they do in Burgundy, and um, you know, trying to mimic and create that similar style here, or do we want to continue on and make our own interpretation of what what organ is? I don't
0: know. What could happen? A lot could happen. Is there anything that um, you kind of said hope for? Is there anything you kind of hope for, or anything you're kind of fearful of coming down in the the Oregon
1: wine future? Fearful of slightly. You know, you start to see some interesting things happen when you get uh, large corporate companies start purchasing up these small producers that make amazing Pinot. A lot changes when you have a lot more hands in the wine, Um, especially when you have money behind it. Um, At that point, they're not trying to make quality Pinot. They're just trying to make a buck. Um, But I don't know. That's a very interesting question, too. What I feel fearful of. I'm just hoping we don't see anything more like 2020. you know, if this is if this is gonna be a normal thing, you know, where we constantly have fires and smoke taint, um, then maybe that's just the new way of Oregon Pinot. Mm-hmm. Some of these wines are gonna be smoke tainted. It's just the vintage. Um, we can do as much as we can to avoid it, but we also don't want to do it if we don't have to. Mm-hmm.
0: So earlier, you you talked to us. You know, obviously you've done a lot of things. Uh, fairly fairly short fairly short career so far. You find yourself here, and this seems to be the place you want to be, as you said, for, for a good long time. So, what is it about the the Palmer House that is that place for you? And what do you see as you look ahead for your for your future here? So
1: the Palmer House, it, I don't know, it feels like my home when I'm here. Um, you know, I've I've worked with Chef Chris for two years now, and um, worked really closely with him on developing a lot of how the restaurants run. Um, he has given me so much control over um, overseeing how service goes and how the dining room goes, which is just um, amazing. You know, it's, that's, it's hard for him because he's been doing this his whole life. And to have a, you know, 26 spunky kid come in, 26 um, year old kid that, you know, has a lot of fine dining background and chef experience, um, uh, you know, I have a lot of new ideas for for how I want the place to be run. Um, but Chris has a lot, of, a lot more um, experience than I do. So we're kind of a nice team because I like to bring the new ideas but he tries to hold me back a little bit because he wants to like process them and think about them and make sure it's the right decision. But I'm also at the same time trying to push him to um, what, like, what the next step is for our restaurant. Um, and you know what's what's new um, which again is I think the whole conversation of like the new generations coming into the valley there's lots of lots of changes um, and, you know at some point Chris wants to retire he has two kids and a wife and you know I think they're what, 8 and 11 right now but he doesn't want to wake up one day and they're off to college he wants to be a dad and a husband when he when he can so you know having someone in the front of the house like me that can um, Manage the entire restaurant when he's, when he's not here, so he can spend more time with his kids. is great, um, but at the same time, it stresses him out not being on the floor, <laughs> which it would for me. You know, I don't I don't like not being here during service because we have winemakers coming in, we have VIPs coming in. Just you know, there's lots of small things that happen on the daily that I like to be here to to help facilitate. Um, but constantly, 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 we're getting praises from all across the board, from all of our guests, that they have not experienced dining like this in Oregon. They're, everyone's saying this is like the best experience we've ever had, the best dining experience we've ever had, the best service we've ever had, some of the best food we've ever had, and everyone's like, where have you been? And we're sitting here like we've been here. We've been here for 26 years, but the restaurant's not what it used to be. Um, Chef Chris took over from his parents in 2009 when he got back from Iraq, and, ever since, the, the restaurant hasn't been the same. And it hasn't been, hasn't been the same for the better. Um, you know, we still have a lot of guests that have dined with us for, forever, and they know who we are, and they know what we stand for. But we also have guests that you know want something new. They want something exciting. Um, you know, this renovation is brand new. Um, you know, we had our most successful year on record um, in 2021. We were closed first three months because of COVID, um, understaffed. We dropped our guest headcount by about a quarter, uh, maybe even half. But despite that, we actually had our highest grossing year on record. Uh, We grossed over a million dollars a year. And so we took that and put it back in the restaurant and renovated it from what it used to be into this new space. So uh, new carpeting, new wallpaper, new lighting audio system, uh, new built-in banquettes. but we still preserved the the old feel of this little small town gem in Dayton, Oregon, that's serving some of the most authentic, um, like true to Oregon cuisine, um, you can find with some of the best service in the valley. It's it's amazing. Um, this this restaurant is it's incredible, and I've seen it grow so much since I've been here, um, and I've been really grateful to be a part of helping it grow. Um, We've seen a lot of staff changes here. Um, I've implemented a lot of new things as far as how we run service on a a daily. Um, I've never worked in a Michelin restaurant, um, but I like to think that I run this place like a Michelin restaurant. Um, You know, every attention to detail is something that no other restaurant is doing. Um, Little things like replacing the napkin when the guest gets up to, to use the restroom. Pushing in their chair, Um, you know, like we. There's always all these little things that we do that you don't really think about from a guest standpoint until it goes wrong, and then you're like, "Oh, well, this was all weird." But if it all goes flawlessly, then you leave having one of the best experiences of your of your life, Um, and I like being a part of that and helping facilitate that. Um, You know, what might have a I have a mantra, I guess you could call it, I remember when I first got uh, first got hired here, um, Chris had me, I don't even know what I want to call like a statement I guess, um, of just like I'm going to hold you to this kind of thing, it wasn't really a contract, it was just like I want you to write down like your mission statement essentially. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote to him and I continue this every day. but. Um, Commitment to constant and never-ending improvement to hospitality excellence. That's what I. That's what I stand for. That's what um, I teach my team to stand for. And it's always guest first. You know, uh, whatever makes the guest happy. You know, we're here to create memories. Um, I remember uh, every single food and dining experience I ever had that just blew my socks off. I know who I was with, what I ate, what the wine was. Um, you know, some people like to spend their money on cruises or cars or shoes or jewelry whatever um, we have a, people that dine here like to spend their money on food and wine they, they're here for an experience and we are here to create memories for those guests and i want them to leave happier than they did when they came in it's a pretty solid mission statement thank you
0: <laughs> you brought up earlier the ability through food and wine to sort of to give back you talk about the childhood childhood cancer uh, and all the other all things you support so tell me about uh, moving forward, uh, sort of how you see that playing a role in your life as as you, as you go forward in your career.
1: Absolutely. Um, so yes, I mean obviously still children's cancer and um, the companies that helped save my life are um, a huge part of my my career. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I've I've worked with a few different wineries now that create private labels for funding for children's cancer awareness. Um, and I still try to be as heavily involved as I can in these companies. I'm still actively on the board of directors for a few of them. Um, but as much as I love the food and wine culture and in the industry, uh, if one of these companies ever offered me a full-time position to come work for them, to maybe it's fund fundraising or maybe it's um, you know, they're opening a restaurant, I don't even know. It, they offered me a full-time position to come work, um, to get back to the the children's cancer cause. I would probably have to take it. It um, would be a really, really hard decision to to turn down, um, to give up everything I've put in here, um, to leave Chris, but to, you know, to also do something bigger. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say hopefully that doesn't happen because that just sounds horrible <laughs> um but i'll I'll be here for for a long time. um I've already turned down multiple jobs since I've been here just because i it's the palmer house mm-hmm. this you know I've been here for two years, but it's I feel like it's like it's a part of me now. I've yeah. given so much to the restaurant that I don't want to leave it, and a lot of the team um here. Um, you know, I've trained, I've taught, I've, they're like, well, it's, they're not all of not my kids but, because a lot of them are older than me actually, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, that's, we're a family. Um, but I do try to be heavily involved in um, actively giving back as much as I can. Um, you know, currently the winemakers that are doing um, projects for TCTDI, um, Authentique, Uh, Alexana uh, Stoller and I'm working on currently um, a private label with Rosanaro as well uh, to create um, again funding for children's children's cancer uh, awareness Mm -hmm. Um, and I want it to be big, you know my goal for the project is I want to have at least 12 wineries um, fully committed to this so that I can offer a case um, program where it's like okay you know donate or buy this case of wine, all the proceeds from this case go towards this company, but here you are getting these amazing Pinot Noirs. Um, you know, I'm sure you've, you've probably seen cancer labels and stuff in the past, but it's all garbage wine. You know, no one cares about what's in the bottle, they're all just buying it for a cause. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I can't be a psalm and I have amazing wine. So I'm like, no, if I'm gonna do this, like, you gotta have amazing wine too. Because, yes, people are gonna buy it for a cause, but the wine that you're tasting in that has to be incredible because then you're going to buy my mark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is there anything else uh, as you look ahead for yourself, uh, looking forward to in the future, uh, projects or, or uh, ambitions for other things as you, as you look ahead uh, either in the, in the world of wine or beyond?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I love it here. I don't know how long I'll actually be here for, i say 10 to 15 years. Um, But that being said, I'm still only 26. You know, there's a lot of restaurants and things out there that I haven't experienced and um, you know, I wouldn't mind working in New York for a year or going to Chicago or um, going to California or something. Um, Not that I'm like actively looking for jobs but uh, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, sure. Like I said, I've turned down a few different jobs recently but I still got through the interview process just because it's, you know, it's interesting to hear what they have to offer, and um, it's still an experience. It's you know, it's good for just building yourself to just interview because interviews are hard. Um, but I'm not like actively looking to leave the Palmer House. If something presents itself and it's a better opportunity, then at that point I would present myself, present that to Chef Chris, and we'd have a very long conversation about the future. Um, but that being said, Chris and I have also talked about um, the future here. Uh, we just want to rent the renovation, but you know we want to. We've talked about tearing down the barn because um, it's about to go anyway, um, <laughs> and turning it into a you know a VRBO, renting it out as a tasting room space for a small winery that doesn't have a tasting room like Double Zero or De La Boo or something. Um, we've thought about converting the, the patio into more of a more of a spaced area. Um, you know, we have a we're constantly thinking about the next step. You know, Chris likes to say, you know, he likes to he's constantly thinking about like the next six months, the next year, the next two years from now. Um, what's the next thing? Um, you know, that's, that's why we have the winemaker dinners coming up um, next season, because January, February, March, April is always slow for us. Mm-hmm. And Wednesday, Thursdays are just dead, um, and it's it's hard to do. Um, we have a, a pretty decent sized team here, but you know. Having to call them on a Wednesday and be like, "Hey, like I'm sorry, you can't, um, you can't work today. Like we don't have the staff for it, or don't need you." It's hard. You know, they have lives too. They have bills to pay, and some of them have kids. And you know, so we started doing this about a, um, a year ago, um, developing these winemaker dinners. So we have not a slow season. So it's every Thursday in February, March, and April. Um, we'll have at least 40 guests in each seat for. Our slow season, because um, Tuesday, Friday, Saturdays are still all our busiest days, um, so we're not worried about that. But yeah, we're constantly thinking about the next steps here. Um, you know, we just implemented a new, a new menu um, that we call Tete de Cuvée, um, which, in obviously in wine terms, Tete de Cuvée is the best of the best champagne coming from a specific house. Um, in this case, the Joel Palmer House, but um, it's our Ormo Classé menu but it's our most elevated expression of it. So it offers, um, you know, A5 Wagyu from Kyoto, Japan, um, white sterling caviar uh, from caviar, sterling caviar in California, uh, foie gras. Um, we start everyone off with a glass of bubbles from Barnet, Barnett, um, which is an amazing sparkling producer in the valley. Um, and we implemented that menu about two weeks ago, but we're always thinking about what's next. We want to keep growing. Um, as We still have to see restaurants in the valley change based on the seasons and new producers coming in as well. Um, you know, now there's that new restaurant, Okta, with uh, Matt Lightninger that's in McMinnville and you have Humble Spirit now and um, you know, the Payne Lady is doing their tasting menu and Jory's doing their menu now and um, again, we're not competitive, you know, we're all, we're all fighting for the same guest clientele but um, you know, no one's going to dine here three nights in a row. Like, someone staying at, in McMinnville at Okta, or if they are, um, you know, they have an amazing experience at Okta. Great. We, we did, too. Chef Chris and I and his wife dined there, and it was fantastic, and Matt's such a cool, I love Matt. Um, but, you know, they're there at the hotel, at the tributary, and they say, hey, we just had dinner here last night. You know, where should we go? And they're going to say, oh, go to Joe Palmer House. It's on the way into Dayton. Oh, go check out Jory. Go check, check out and Lady. Um, and so we're constantly just kind of building relationships with the different restaurants and wineries, and trying to create this thing. And you know, having having someone like Okta in the valley was um, really good for us. Actually, us as a as a valley as a whole, not just Palmer House. But um, so we're under the impression of the what's the phrase? The rising tides float all boats. Um, you know, you have someone, you know, former two Michelin star chef that's being backed by a billion dollar company. Um, that's putting all their effort into this restaurant, they're bringing in guests from all across the country to come check out this new space. And they're, like I said, they're going to not eat there three days in a row. They're going to come check out other restaurants and go to different wineries and taste amazing wines. And So it's, we, all, we all work for the same, the same cause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very exciting.
0: All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? Hmm. I don't think so. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank For hosting you. us here today and telling us all, all your story so far. And uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.